0: My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 cast. A few weeks ago, Ken Burns was trending on Twitter and I began to panic. Please, God, no, not Ken Burns. I was still reeling from finding out that Rolf Harris was a nonce. So I clicked to see what all the fuss was about, fearing I would never be able to watch one of his incredible, masterful documentaries again. But no, it was something far worse for Ken, because Ken, as a white man, had been making films on PBS for years, funded by public money. That was, apparently, the issue. No talk of his contribution to film culture, no mention of his brilliance in storytelling and the sheer majesty of the wonderful films and documentary series he's produced... No, Ken Burns is a white man who has been making films for a long time, and did people really think this was okay? Aside from being ageist and fucking stupid, it was also indicative of how in the past few years, the ideology of film and TV culture has shifted from the pursuit of genuine insight to one of petty obsession with triviality. Had I clicked on the Ken Burns to read a series of tweets in praise of the so-called Ken Burns effect and the genius and simplicity and application of that effect in storytelling, I would have not wasted half an hour scouring through Twitter, watching people upload examples, share their memories of the first Ken Burns film they ever saw and perhaps, just maybe, decided to watch The Civil War again for the umpteenth time. Yet the days of people like Andre Bazan are over. Instead, 30 minutes I spent looking in horror at the sheer idiocy of film Twitter. But this is the world we are in, and I believe we should be worried. I mention this because Sight and Sound have been teasing their 2022 Best of Poll for many months, and it reached damn near fever pitch come November and to be clear I love these types of polls debating the the left out the perplexing the realies, and the joy of digging up some uncovered gems but as the Ken Burns non-debacle shows we are a very different place than we were ten years ago, when Sight and Sound released their poll, and for us all to be discussing, was Vertigo really the best film of all time? Was it indeed the best Hitchcock film of all time? Streaming, television, games, the pandemic, and the rise of wokeness have all combined to change film culture. And no better was this demonstrated with a recent dinner with a friend who I'd made some years ago. To describe her, as woke would be something of a understatement. She is a film academic, a published author, and we had dated a number of years ago. And although our kind of romantic relationship had never really blossomed, a friendship had. And it has been a friendship that has been tried many times in the past few years. Name a cause and she will attach herself to it and be deeply offended on behalf of anyone who asks her to. She literally believes that film needs a kind of year zero type reset. Any director who even has a sniff of bad conduct should be struck from film history. So there should be no Alfred Hitchcock, no John Ford, no John Wayne, no anyone who seems to have dared do anything wrong. And I've tried explaining to her that sometimes it's necessary to separate the artist from the art and of course it is increasingly hard to do to give an example I will never watch never not watch Chinatown even though I know Roman Polanski is a disgusting rapist because to do so is to not enjoy Jerry Goldsmith's incredible score Robert Town and one of the best screenplays ever written possibly my favourite Faye Dunaway appearance and of course there's the brilliant Jack Nicholson and needless to say, we have debated this type of thing over and over again. However, whilst we were having dinner, we began to talk about the upcoming Sight and Sound poll. She was mildly irritated, I could tell, that she hadn't been asked to contribute towards it. And through a casual teasing it, I discovered that in the kind of world of film academia, it is seen as something as a badge of honour, especially since Sight and Sound have gone to such lengths over so this poll to expand the range of people they invited to take part in it. We then decided to have a hypothetical conversation about what films we would include, had we been asked, in our top ten lists. And one of the first films she picked up on was Agnes Varner's Cleo from 5 to 7. I had recently seen the film when I was going through the recent Criterion Blu-ray box set of Wagner's work, and I agreed it was an exceptional film, to which she responded with a straight face That she hadn't actually seen it which in turn begged the question from me how on earth therefore could she include it in a top 10 best films of all time list and what she said began to make me panic slightly the reason she wanted to include the film was because it was directed about by a woman and as far as she could tell had a quite feminist storyline how though, I said to her, could you do that if you hadn't seen the film? Surely you could pick another film by another female director that would fill the slot. And we went back and forth and she admitted to me that she knew people who had been selected for the sight and sound poll who were picking films, not perhaps based on their personal preference, but what they felt should be Included in the top ten films of all time, and we're going out their way to find these films, and I began to feel a little bit concerned at this point. I would say there is a balancing act to do. Were to do my top ten lists of all time, my favourite films to top ten, I would say the best films of all time. I think there would probably be about four films from my favourites list that would make it on to. My, what I consider to be the best films of all time. But the idea of selecting films that I had never watched purely because I thought that they might have some kind of significance I think is completely disingenuous. And I think you have to look at something like the Oscars to see what happens when you try and go with the times. What was essential to me growing up has now become some kind of hideous psychodrama. Ideology has robbed it of any form of prestige for me. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. The viewing figures for the Oscars have crashed. It has got to the point where it is almost becoming unviable as an economic entity to continue. And why is because no one really cares. Film fans don't care anymore. And by pandering to a crowd of rabid, woke idiots, they have failed to grasp the nihilism of this mindset and movement. They don't care about the Oscars. They want it to be punished for its perceived wrongs so they can move on to the next cause. And the more I thought about it, the more I became even more concerned that the the sight and sound pole would shift towards a current zeitgeist in cultural thinking that I have become increasingly despairing of in recent years. And I've personally really noticed the decline in how we talk about films over the past ten years, especially, and I know it's the wrong place to go, but places like Twitter. For example, I saw someone on Twitter and it one of the questions was name a film you, you've seen twice but cannot stand and the person had replied with my own private Idaho. now of course that meant that they were a raging homophobe that they were bigoted that they were an awful human being and it should be so self-evidently clear why just because you don't like a film it doesn't mean you have anything against one particular group or other but that's where we are at the moment we've become... A society, I think, largely insulated from the repercussions of actually saying things to people's faces. There's no way if you were at a dinner table and someone said they didn't like that film, you would accuse them of being homophobic, but online it seems to be the way forward. And I wonder how much we actually care about films as much as we used to. Certainly I don't go to the cinema three quarters as much as I used to. The amount of films that come out that I'm interested in a few and far between, the rise of franchises like Marvel. And that's not to say I haven't enjoyed Marvel films. However, they've taken up such a space in the world of cinema, much of the debate and indeed the exhibition around these films is almost overwhelming at times. And there does seem to be huge disparities as well between critics and what audiences think. A recent example would be the film Memoria, a film I found so utterly boring, I wish I'd switched it off after 20 minutes, but I persevered and watched the entire thing. It had an incredibly high critic score, I think almost in 90%, yet yeah, an audience score of 30%. And I've seen that model repeated several times. Why are there these massive discrepancies? I, I, I have no real kind of answer to that, but I think it's definitely an interesting trend that I've seen developing. I think it just goes back to this view that I have, that so much has changed in the past ten years. So going into this poll, I was somewhat sceptical. Would I think ideology be the prominent factor in many of the films that people chose? Would I would you see people from the canon, the Spielbergs and the like, slipping out of the poll altogether? So when the copy arrived in early December, I eagerly decided to have a flick through. And I'm obviously going to have to start with The Obvious, which was the number one pick in the 2022 Sight and Sound poll for the greatest film of all time. Ten years ago, Vertigo dethroned Citizen Kane as the greatest film of all time. It surprised many, myself included, and I'm still yet to have that screening of Vertigo, Where I get it, the hype, the addiction, the adulation. I doubt it would make my top five Hitchcocks. And I wondered if it was going to keep its place. And the answer was a resounding no. As Vertigo's Dethroner came in the form of a shock, a film I had never watched that had made up a staggering 35 places to the top spot, which kind of goes against how these sight and sound polls work. Normally films begin a kind of slow, gradual journey to the top, hitting the top 20, easing the way into the top 10, and then slowly working the way up the list. But no, this one had suddenly jumped a breathtaking 35 places in the space of 10 years. And it was, of course, Chantal Ankeman's Janine Dillman. It had seemingly come out of nowhere to many, but having never watched the film, of course, I was intrigued to see what all the fuss was about. And after seeing it, I began to realise that I wasn't actually that surprised that this miracle had occurred. And upon watching the film, I found myself discussing it with a great deal, many people, which I think is kind of the point of this whole type of thing in the first place. Now, it would be a lie to say that I enjoyed Janine Dillman. It is a film that is effectively the complete opposite of what you would you expect a film to be. Its film grammar is minimalist, almost functional. The camera simply stays in a series of wide shots as Janine Dillman, played by Delphine Seyrig going about her daily chores. There are no close-ups, no point of view shots, no shot reverse shots, nothing. In a way it's a film that reminds me of the very beginning of the birth of cinema where a cinema where a camera operated as a pretty observational device to capture a moment in time, documenting people going about their daily business, trains arriving at stations, and cinema evolved and so did its language and style. Chantal and style in Ginny Dillman feels all the more daring to me because of her absolute and total commis- commitment to the, a very singular artistic vision. It's a challenging, provocative film, And over three hours, you very much have to go into it on its terms. And I think if you're used to a more, I suppose, palatable type of cinema, then you might be in for something of a shock. However, I cannot deny that Ackerman's style does make for a particularly gruelling experience. Because make no mistake, Janine Dillman is, I think at times, an incredibly boring film and I suspect that rather is the intention of sorts. We see her life over three days, and it's one of agonising repetition, boredom, cleaning, cooking, trips to the shops, caring for her son, and also a series of sexual encounters. As She also, it seems, works as a prostitute for a series of loyal customers. She never emotes, we never hear her internal monologue, and there is scarcely a sigh as she goes about her routine. She becomes an archetype of sorts, a female stuck in a monotonous cycle of motherhood and domestic servitude. And I think the word context is key here. My mother gave up her career, as many did of her peer group, to have children and tend to the house. This was for many simply the done thing. There was no financial need for her to work and it's just seemingly what a lot of women did. My mother gave up a career, as did many of her peers, to have babies and tend to the house there was no financial need for her to work and she did recall in later years how crushingly boring she found it she kicked herself for not having more hobbies and interests and she did go you know occasionally out with friends and whatnot but there was a great deal of regret that she had simply slipped into this cycle of monotony and who can really blame her yet i do think It was the reality for a great deal, many women. And Shanna Eichmann was 25 when she made this film. And it really does, despite its glacial pace, feel like an incredibly angry film to me. Through the repetition, I found myself asking questions. Why and how has her life turned out into this place? And we expect a narrative to offer her a route out. One of her clients perhaps might offer her something. A job might come up. One of her friends might suggest something that would lead for a break in the routine. But we get nothing of the sort. The film and its vignettes unfolds in real time. These moments contain exactly what we see in them, which is to say no outside force ever interrupts. No phone rings off screen for a friend to invite her out for lunch, or any such encounter that might progress the plot to a point where we feel she's going to escape the situation. And I sarcastically tweeted whilst I was watching the film that I was in tenderhooks to see whether a kettle was going to boil over. And of course I was being facetious and rather silly. But it, I think it, looking back actually, I think that's kind of the point. You do end up when you're watching the films kind of inventing your own miniature narratives to fill in some of the blanks, either rightly or wrongly. And as the film went on, I became far more intrigued by it. And I was beginning to wonder where all this was going. And then, of course, it does go somewhere. Somewhere that completely surprised me and indeed shocked me. So much so that I actually rewound the film by 10 minutes to see if I'd actually missed something. Whether someone had said something or there had been a phone call. But no, and spoiler alert, she ends up killing one of her clients she first takes sexual pleasure from him, and then simply stabs him unemotionally with a pair of scissors. And after which, we sit down with her at the dinner table for seven whole minutes, whilst we contemplate what has just happened. Janine says nothing. It's not made clear why she has done this. The man was in no way in that shape of him being abusive towards her at all. We wonder then where this motive may have come from. And suddenly it dawned on me that in those moments of repetition and Janine just going about her work, you began to understand what she might have been thinking. How is it her life had turned to having to have sex to make ends meet? Did her son actually appreciate what she did for him? How had her life descended into all this? She never says it, but perhaps she was feeling sorry for herself, perhaps she was plotting some kind of way out for herself all along, perhaps this murder was something that was what wasn't perhaps a crime of passion as such, maybe she had been thinking about doing it for some time as a form of escape, who knows? And All kinds of feelings and emotions went through me, I actually think, even though I'd been with it for so many hours that this film had a genuinely satisfying conclusion. I actually felt that the journey had been worth it. I actually left the film room. Not elated, but I genuinely felt that I had experienced something in a film that I hadn't really gone through before. It was quite an extraordinary experience in many cases. It was a film that challenged me on so many levels, and it is a challenging film, make absolutely no mistake. And given the zeitgeist and where we are culturally, I think it is a fitting film to win the Sight and Sound poll. Fitting and that it represents where we have come from and where we are now. We've been through, Me Too, the scandals of Hollywood, etc, etc. And it's easy to dismiss Jeanne Dillman being at the top of the poll as reactionary, but I think we could argue that it might be entirely necessary, given where we are. And even saying that has surprised me a little bit. It is a film that I think straddles the line between what we can confidently say is a film and the avant-garde, it's almost like an art installation of sorts and yes I do think it is a film that ideology trumps aesthetics and not in a million years would I put it anywhere near my top ten poll and I don't think in any way shape or form it is one of the best films ever made but I'm quite happy for it to be the top of the poll. I think it's provoked a lot of debate. I've certainly spoken a lot about the film. I've been intrigued. For, I don't know if I have much intention of ever going back and watching it again. Perhaps we'll see where it ends up in another 10 years. But for the time being, I think it's going to be a, a film that gets people talking. And also, I think it's a really good sign how this film has gone up the rankings, because this so easily could have fallen into those cracks of never really appearing on streaming, not getting any physical media release and a lot of people it seems saw it through watching it on the Criterion channel or the BFI player Uh, and I know it was given a restoration a few years ago and a lot of people seem to have seen that and it's a film that hasn't fallen away into history, it's remained relevant through streaming and physical media so But I think it's a statement, I think it's a point where we can talk about it, and I think we can have discussions on a variety of things. I mean, the fact that I'm saying it has no style of sorts, of course, that is a style of sorts, and it's a style which is perfectly in keeping of what Shanta Arkhaman is trying to do with it. So, can I recommend it? Well, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, be, be prepared, I mean, perhaps break the screening up into a couple of screens, I don't know, but I mean... You know, I, I, you know I, I'm slightly ashamed to admit that I did send a couple of sarcastic tweets whilst I was watching it. But that was only when I was replenishing my drink. I wasn't um, trying to demean the film at all. But yeah, I think as a number one, it's a it's it's a talking point. And I think that's. It's always healthy to talk about films. And again, I, I love these lists and the fact that they do push me out of my comfort zone, I certainly think this will for you as well. Elsewhere on the Sight and Sound Greatest Films poll, I wasn't surprised that the overrated Get Out clipped into the top 100. This mediocre if fun horror films seem to have convinced a lot of people. It was more than just a fun B-movie with rather obvious social commentary. Parasite was a very recent addition to the poll, and it's one of those films where I think I was slightly worried that the hype around the film would put me off it some, but it has in fact got better with every viewing, and I would not be surprised if in the next 10 years it begins to clip into the top 20 territory. Spirited Away leapt from 202 to 75th place. And I've always struggled with anime. It's just yet to click with me. And I know I do admire the artwork and the animation that goes into them. But it's just the films themselves have so far really failed to land the emotional punch that I kind of know, what I believe anyway, exists in them. It's just yet to kind of really happen for me. And I think it's something which perhaps this year I'm going to try and work on. Another surprise to me was that Antonioni's L'Aventura dropped from 21 to 72. And yes, had I been asked to contribute to a top 10 poll, this would have definitely made it. And in fact, it would have also made it. Would also, make my favourite films uh, of all time. And there were some other big fallers too. Journey to Italy fell from 41 to 72, Andre Rublev. 27 to 67 metropolis 37 to 67 again on a tie and the battleship potemkin from 11 to 54 and breathless also too dropped from 13 to 38 all of these films i think can be considered canon but perhaps just perhaps this is indicative that the canon is being redefined reimagined, and reconfigured time of course is going to tell the absence of any Steven Spielberg films surprised me greatly, given that I thought that the people responding to the poll would have been from a kind of younger demograph, and I was ex- fully expecting to see something like Jurassic Park make the list. But the fact there's no Jaws, Close Encounters and Schindler's List, and if you think about the absence of Jaws, especially in relation to the addition of Get Out, you do really have to... It was one of those moments when I was perusing the poll, I thought perhaps that collectively the film world had slightly lost its mind. Barbara Loden's Wonder was a very much welcome addition to the list though, up from 202 to 40A, a great film and well worth picking up on the Criterion Blu-ray. The piano also leapt from 235 to 50 and I went back to it recently when I picked up the Criterion UHD of the film. And I was, when I first watched this film, slightly in awe of it. But going back again, I fell rather flat for me. Um, I'm not quite sure what has happened in the interim. But it certainly didn't do as much for me as it did before. I was, however, delighted to see that Billy Wilder's The Apartment Let from 127 to 54 and a recent screening of the Kino 4K UHD release of this film really did make me believe that it might just be the best rom-com and one of the greatest feel-good films ever made. And of course, as well, there was the films that I'd never heard of, which I will now be very much intrigued to see, Tropical... Malady, A Brighter Summer Day, News From Home, Killers of Sheep, and Meshes of the Afternoon. All were films that I'd never heard of, and having read the synopsis of it, I will be checking out in the very near future. Overall, I thought it was an interesting list. Films by women did not rank until 2012, and then there were only two. Now we have 11. There's more African, more black, or Asian filmmakers in the list than ever before, and it feels very much reflective of a world cinema than ever. And this month as well, Sight and Sound the BFI will release even more lists from the people who were invited to submit them, so I'm sure there'll be a great deal of sifting going on, picking out some hidden gems. I might not like Portrait of a Lady and Flyer, nor do I think Moonlight, is all that great but plenty of people do and perhaps it might be the nudge I need to revisit these films and perhaps get over the rather uncharitable opinions I formed of them. I did find the director's poll far more representative of my tastes with 2001 taking the top spot and I suppose that really is an indicative of how I feel about films. I'm far more interested in what filmmakers think about film than I am at the moment about contemporary film criticism. There are virtually no critics who I follow at the moment or have a great deal of interest in so I think perhaps it just only, it's only natural I would gravitate more to that. And let's not forget this is just a list, it's people's opinions. Jaws still exists despite the fact it didn't make the top 100. But I do think it's indicative that the era of certainty in the Sight and Sound poll is most definitely over. I can see the top spot changing more often. There will be more surprises, more rediscoveries and more reevaluations, I think, than ever before. And I wonder how much film culture is going to change again over the next 10 years. What will be the trends? What will be the movements? What will people be gravitating towards? It's going to be interesting for sure. And it's slightly disturbing that when the next time this release um, comes out, I will be in my early 50s. I think it would be a rather... um, it will be interesting to anyway. I definitely when I was looking at the list, I was thinking about kind of my life over the past 10 years. I actually wrote down kind of like a few things that had happened and it, it has been quite an interesting ride. So and I'm not one of those people who um, dislikes getting older, actually. I, I've, I've always um, been completely fine with it. So it will be interesting to see where we all are in the next 10 years. So that will be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast um i will be returning very soon with a film and television review of 2022 many thanks for listening and a happy new year bye